Our scripture this morning is uh, taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, from the New Revised Standard Version. Glory God in body and spirit. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one or the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body for, with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh, but anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornication sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Which of you have phoned from God and that you are not your own? For you were brought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We have been working through a sermon series, Love Everybody, where we are looking at how Christ came in the flesh and that God has created and redeemed and renewed not just our spiritual selves, but all of ourselves. And so we're looking at uh, how God has called and, and, is, and is speaking into our physical selves, not just our spiritual selves. And I'm imagining that I'm not alone and that you're not alone in asking a question at some point in your life, maybe right now, can I do blank? Is it okay for me as a Christian to do blank? You fill it in. And I don't think anyone in the room probably might have heard that question more recently, perhaps, uh, than those who work with our youth, because that is often a question as you start thinking for yourself, you start kind of having your own agency, and you're like, wait a minute, wait, what can I do, what can't I do? And, and you're wanting to explore that question. But it is not a question only reserved for the young among us. Uh, even think about when you get to the end of your days, what kind of burial should I want? It's not right to th have this kind of burial or that kind of thing. And the questions continue throughout our lives. And I, I, you know, I like to put on Facebook a, an invitation for sometimes for people to speak into a question that we'll be talking about. And so I asked, what's something you've heard someone ask if it's okay to do as a Christian? And there's some pretty standardized answers that you get to this question. Some of those have to do with what you eat or with what you drink. One of the biggest ones about what you drink and where you go to drink it. Uh, and I love how this game kind of plays out because I, I won't share who had this conversation with, but uh, you know, someone's like, you know, I, I, I don't want anything to do at all with alcohol in any sense. And so I was like, okay, well, what about communion? Like, would you take communion if it was wine? And I think this was around the context when we were doing this ecumenical interfaith 
communion service, and we were trying to figure out the logistics of how do you do that with different traditions, and they're like, no, no, I, I could never take it if it was wine. I was like, okay. So you're there when the actual first communion happened, and Jesus sets wine in front of you. Are you saying that you would just never take it? I couldn't do it. Oh, okay. Um, but it's a legitimate concern, a legitimate question, and a legitimate struggle for somebody. Uh, and we have different struggles of that, of what, what's right and what's wrong. Uh, a lot of the questions that were answered of, is it okay for a Christian to do, were around entertainment. Uh, maybe because it's spending, how do you spend your leisurely time? How do you spend your kind of um, extra time? Uh, what kind of music do you listen to? Or movies do you watch? Or literature do you read? You know, uh, whether you celebrate certain kinds of generic holidays like Halloween, do you play cards or do you gamble? Do you dance? Do you do yoga? All sorts of, is it okay for me to do this or not? And then we get to the relationship ones, and that's where a lot of them happen. You know, is it okay? Um, even, like, let's talk the stories that women are told. Can I wear this makeup? Can I wear this outfit? A little bit more questions than some of the men in the room have had to face in their life. When, is it okay to do this? Um, what kind of physical intimacy is okay? Is it all right to marry a non-Christian? Uh, what about contraception or in vitro fertilization? All sorts of different kinds of childbearing things and divorce. And we've got plenty of relationship questions. And I think what's interesting is we often frame some of these questions as, can you be a Christian and do X? Like, if you do anything that hits this prohibited category, suddenly you're completely an outsider. And we know, though, that our Bible is filled with people who did plenty of really weird, often bad, at least questionable activities. But you think about how much leeway King David gets in your mind. I mean, if anybody gets some leeway, he does, right? I mean, uh, adultery, and then let's have the woman's husband killed. That's pretty rough, right? Uh, Saul, I can hurt pe people who are Christians. I can, I can condone their, their deaths. There's plenty of people who do really questionable behaviors, and it's not about can they then still find forgiveness, can they still find relationship with God. Um, but obviously there's a way to live a better life. Uh, but once you say, well, technically there's nothing you can do that gets in the way of being a child of God, then people are like, well, I can do whatever I want. Maybe that's under the guise of at some point I'll change, but like right now at least, I can do whatever I want, and that kind of sounds like good news to most of our culture. I can do whatever. Um, and that's, that's a real temptation uh, to go down that road. And I, I think that this text today uh, maybe hopefully can open us up to that question of, well, what can we do? What should we do? And maybe it helps to realize that people have been asking those kinds of questions for a very long time, that you're not new at asking them. Uh, and what does Paul and what does our, our Scripture say into that situation? So what's going on in Corinth? Corinth has a lot of lovely struggles and challenges. I always love when people act like churches today have all these problems and like that's new. We've had problems for a very long time. Some of them are canonized in our scripture. Uh, how would you like all of your dirty laundry to be put into a Bible and stay around for everyone to read about for 2,000 years? 
But here's Corinth. They're struggling with all sorts of things. A lot of them are very physical things. Some of it's about eating. So the wealthy among that community, they'd get off early. Uh, maybe you, you've seen people that work e- the, the crazy hours. You're not necessarily seeing the pay from that. But the people who had more money would get off early. They'd start eating that dinner sooner. What do you know? We ran out of food. And so that the poor among the community would show up to dinner and there's no more food. And Paul's like, hey, stop that. Save food. Eat it together. Don't, don't, don't take everybody else's food. Like, have a meal together. Be in communion together. And so they talk about food. Also, what's on that meal plan? Because we don't have to face the same struggle, but uh, if you were going down a street market and you wanted to pick up some meat for your dinner, well, you don't know if that's been sacrificed to another god. Like, they cooked it and they said prayers to some other god, and here's this meat sacrificed to idols. And you bring it to dinner and someone says, instead of is there meat in that, or, uh, you know, whatever kind of dietary question they're asking, they're saying, wait, did someone pray to Jupiter about that food? Can I eat that? And so Paul has to deal with that, of like, well, what can I put in my body? What can I eat? Is it okay to eat this? What if someone in the room is really hindered by eating this? But also, it's not just food. There is a lot of weird sexual stuff happening in this church. Um, Earlier in the book, he has to tell someone it's not okay to hook up with your stepmom. Like, that's a part of our biblical text. Uh, again, something that you want to see read for 2,000 years. Uh, and in this text, they talk a lot about prostitution, which we forget uh, is different in our time than in their time, that there's no police running to find someone that's a prostitute and put them in jail. Like, it's, it's a, a part of society and culture of that time. And so some Christians are saying, hey, it's fine, right? Like, there's prostitution and whatever, you know, and... And so Paul's dealing with a lot of how does our faith interact with our bodies and what are we called to do. And there's a a particular challenge that I think we should be aware of when reading this text. Um, I always kind of find it interesting when people act like reading the Bible is super simple. Um, There's plenty of complexities to it, uh, one of which you you might not realize, which is uh, part of what we get in this text is what's called a diatribe. That sounds like something you hear on a news station tonight, like, you know, at a nightly news where people are yelling at each other. Um, but a diatribe was uh, in an ancient writing technique of, like, I'm going to quote some other person that I'm critiquing. I'm going to give their quote, and then I'm going to say something against it. And maybe I'm not even quoting them. Maybe I'm hypothetically speaking from their position. And so I give a quote, and then I counteract it. And so, for example, if, like, on today's topic, if I were to say, just do it, but maybe do something else. You might catch that I'm saying a Nike slogan, just do it. And maybe that's not actually my pos- position that much, but I'm quoting a slogan or an idea of the time, and then I'm, I'm twisting it, I'm changing it. Well, that's really hard to notice in our text. One, how many people are super great experts at Greek philosophy? I mean, when Paul quotes a philosopher, that's hard to know. Even more so, how many of us are experts at what random people in the church in Corinth happen to say and that Paul is going to quote? Like, we just don't know what everybody that's there is saying. So we're not as used to their slogans. There's another really challenging aspect to knowing what to do with this text. There's no punctuation marks in Greek. We don't have quotations. And that gets tricky because, like, if I were to say, uh, if I were to say, 
Brentley said, I was right. Brentley said, in quotations, I was right, would mean Brentley is saying, Brentley is right. No quotations, Brentley said, I was right. I get to be the one that's right. And punctuation really matters. And so, you, you might not notice because you're just reading along in the English text, but these translators have to make those decisions for you. And so, our NRSV, for example, does that. Um, I'm going to use the example from verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. The NRSV puts that in quotations to say, Paul is quoting someone who says this line, but Paul disagrees, and he's going to say something else. And so, in the NRSV, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food. That's the quote. And then Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The NIV puts that same phrase also in quotes, that Paul isn't saying that either, that, well, God's going to destroy both. And from their perspective, Paul's conversation doesn't happen until after that, and it says the body is, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So before you're even reading this text, someone is having to try to tell you who's saying what here. And I love the NASB translation of the New American Standard Bible. It doesn't put quotes anywhere in it. Um, so when are we reading Paul, and when are we reading his, his opponent, his, his ideological antagonist? And that makes a big difference. Um, and to give you a little glimpse into how this happens into biblical studies, some people, if you really don't think something meshes with Paul's theology, maybe you put it in quotes. So it gets tricky. So I say that to set up the fact that we're trying to figure out what's Paul's perspective in the midst of this conversation, and it can get a little bit dicey about when exactly is Paul speaking. Now, something he says twice, which seems like something he's quoting twice, all things are lawful for me. That's what your NRSV translation said. Um, that word that they translate as lawful, it's not really a legal word. Uh, all things are possible, all things are permittable, all things are proper, all things are authorized, but like, hey, it's okay. All things are okay for me to do. That's the kind of slogan that it seems like Paul is responding against in this text, and it's a slogan that's at work in Corinth, but let's be honest, it's at work everywhere. We all are faced with the temptation to walk around saying, I can do whatever I want. That's what Paul is responding to. And Paul says, no. Uh, you shouldn't just do whatever you want. And he's got some reasons for it. One of the, those kind of lines of reasoning is philo philosophical reasons. So he gives some kind of philosophical arguments. Maybe he's quoting some people like Stoics, but he's saying things like, what is beneficial to do? Like, you're using a category of what's permitted. I'm going to use a category of what's beneficial. And I love that word's actually one about, like, um, about bringing people along and bringing community together. So like, what brings other people together? I can do whatever I want. Surely doesn't bring everybody together. Paul gives some other ones. Who has control? So they kind of bring up the category of control of you like, I can do whatever I want. He's, he's saying, you don't realize that you don't even have control over yourself anymore. You think you're doing whatever you want, but you've now submitted to some other thing in your life that is dominating you. And so who has control? He talks about permanence. Does anything last? Like if the stomach, if your body, if, that, if none of this lasts, does it, does it have any lasting impact? Uh, or is it just temporary? But beyond the philosophical arguments, he also gives theology and theological arguments. He, he wants to remind us 
that we are connected to God and that you don't do anything on, on an island, but you are always in relationship to God and how does that affect the way we live and what we do? And so he says, don't forget you're a part of the resurrection. The resurrection should show that our bodies matter, that they are raised and that our hope is that we are raised and so what we do with our bodies should matter. That we are united with the Lord and that came with a price, that suffering on a cross and that kind of pain, certainly our bodies matter to go through that kind of a struggle and pain. And lastly, he talks about you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a place where God is at work and dwells within. Can I do whatever I want? You are connected to God. I want to have our time really focus on Paul's last point. You are a temple. What does that mean? Because we don't have temples in that same way that they had temples. We've got some similarities. But a temple is the place where you encountered God. And especially if you can think about pilgrimages, like not everybody lived in Jerusalem and got to just walk to the temple every day. Uh, it might be a place that you really wanted to go see, that you wanted to encounter God in some unique, special way, and here's a place that fosters that special encounter of God. It's a place where people learn about God, and we learn about God not just from words, but also visuals. In the temple structure, the artwork, uh, the geography of it was meant to say something about God. And I don't know about you, if you've, if you've ever walked into a Greek Orthodox church, like a, particularly if you're in the Holy Land and you walk into these, these, some of these churches, you see the beautiful paintings everywhere. Because if you weren't a literate society, how do you tell the gospel? Tell it visually. That I can walk in this space and I understand who God is. And a temple does that. It, it visualizes for people the message of who God is. A temple is a place where prayer and divine conversation happens. You know, that it's a place that you'd hear sounds. People are, are, are murmuring, they're, they're speaking, they're, they're maybe reading scripture out loud, but they're having a conversation with God. And that's why in the Gospels, Jesus gets really mad because he feels like they're not allowing people to pray very well and that they're making it into a market and they're getting too loud. But the temple is a place where you're supposed to be able to pray and it's definitely a place where there's supposed to be transformation happening. Forgiveness is at work. There's an altar, right, that I found myself outside of connecting with God and somehow God is going to bring me in. And that's where the temple is at work. It's doing something. And one thing that I think we often don't talk about enough is that the temple's location changes quite a bit in the trajectory of our, our faith and our scripture. And you, you maybe have never encountered that there's a lot of interpretations about Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, as a story of God building a temple. Because it's a story of God creating the universe, the place where God dwells. God doesn't just dwell in one little place from the Jewish perspective. God has everything. So all the waters, all the land, all the animals, all the trees, everything. You've built this place where God's going to be and then you put a statue in at the end. The statue of God, though, is not something made of rock or stone, but humans are made in the image of God. And so the humans in the story are supposed to be the image of God walking around, helping point to who God is. And so this universal, like, big picture temple that God is everywhere and you see God especially through people, 
it went through some morph, you know, some, some change, some, it morphs into we've got one spot. It's just the temple in this one city in this one site, and unless you can get there, you didn't get to go to the temple. Whether that's a tabernacle kind of a temple that moves around, but it's still one site, or a physical structure in Jerusalem. Uh, but then you get to the Gospel of John, and that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Christ somehow uh, was God dwelling with us in this new, powerful way. And then that gets passed on to the church in Pentecost. Like Jesus breathes his spirit at the end of the Gospel of John. You've got the fiery tongue kind of imagery and acts. But that God is at work in each of God's, God's members of the church and is at work in the world through the church. And so we are all called to be the temple. Uh, you have a reason, you have a purpose, you have a calling. And so when we ask, is it okay if I do this or that? Like, sometimes we miss the point of what you were created to be, who you were redeemed to be, who you were renewed to be. So are we walking temples in this world? And first I just wanna note, do you think of yourself as a temple like a shell? Like you have nothing of value or importance or meaning to offer? Or are you a temple in that you are a participant in what God is doing in the world around you? Are you just real passive or are you active and living out as a temple in the world? So are we a temple? Are, we encounter, are people encountering God through us? Are you bringing God's presence wherever you go? Right? I mean, that's what a temple is. It brings God's presence and God's encounter. Sometimes we don't want to do that. We decide we want to withhold our presence. We want to stay away. We want to judge. We want to cut off from people. And so we like to withhold ourselves and sometimes God's presence from people. And sometimes that's for selfish reasons. Sometimes, you know, we have different kinds of reasons for it. I know for myself, uh, sometimes there's just that struggle of uh, we went to Sam's Club. Our, our mother-in-law got us a Sam's Club membership. She's like, I want to gift you that. So we're there. We're going through that whole long checkout thing. They're doing the whole membership thing. Finally, about the end of it, they're like, oh, well, what, what brought you to Jackson? Work. You know, because if you say precisely what it is, now we're going to have to go into a long conversation. It's nighttime. I just want to move on. It's the grocery store. Like, ugh. Do I want to be the temple in that moment? <laughs> and oftentimes we don't, right? Um, but are we being the temple? Are we allowing people to encounter God through us? Do we hide it? Do we let it be known? How are we revealing that? Because sometimes our own selfish priorities make us into some not-so-great temples where we cut ourselves off from people. When we enter the room, do people feel judged? Do they feel uplifted? How are you bringing God's presence into people's lives? Some good news, you don't need a house or a phone or a computer to be the temple. We all are invited to bring God's presence uh, as we are. The temple is a place where people learn about God. Are you living your life in a way that people in your life know who God is? Sometimes that's challenging for us in different spheres. Does your family know God through the way that you've interacted with them? Does your coworkers, do your neighbors, does, the, does your servers at dinner, do they learn a little bit about who God is 
based on the way that, that you live in the world? Are you showing that God is loving, that God is good, that God wants uh, what's best for people, wants to bring about a better tomorrow? Do people learn about God through you? The temple is also a place of prayer and divine conversations. Are we fostering prayer lives? Are, are we having theological conversations? I don't know how we can be a temple unless we spend some time in prayer. You know, we often feel like I can do anything. The other version of I can do whatever I want is I can do it by myself. But how often do we spend time actually submitting to God and in prayer and, and asking God for wisdom and guidance so that we would be the presence in other people's lives that also invites them into that same divine conversation into prayer and into learning and talking with God. One other thing on this. Are we also a safe place to have those divine conversations? Because being a gossip is not going to help. Can you imagine that? That would be a really bad temple, right? If it has like a video camera system and so your confessions then just get broadcasted and posted all over social media or wherever else. But can people actually come to you with their challenges, their struggles, and, and ask you to pray for them? And it just is a time for prayer, not for spreading it around, just to spread it around. The temple is a place where healing happens. Are we fostering forgiveness and reconciliation and healing in the world around us? When we're focused on that don't do this list, is it all right to do this or that? Uh, what should I not do? We often forget what we're meant to do, how we are living for something. And how are we healing the wounds that exist in people's lives and in our society? How are we granting forgiveness? How are we um, showing that there's a new way forward and not just piling on or ignoring it or causing even more harm? Can we change those, can I do this questions into what can I do for someone? How can I make the world better in this situation? What can I do for God? Are we avoiding conflicts? Or are we actually bringing about peace? How well are we walking as God's temple in the world around us? You can do anything. We can do anything. But we were created and redeemed and renewed for so much more than just doing anything. As long as we try to figure out our list of what we can't do, we're distracted from what God is calling us to do. What is beneficial? What brings people together? What heals a broken world? And I think what's important to hear and to think about with God today is that what makes God good and worthy of praise is not just that God can do anything and that God is all-powerful and God could do whatever God wants, but that God chooses to use that all-powerfulness to be vulnerable, to be on a cross, to be a baby, in a manger, that God chooses in unlimited possibilities to love us even when we don't act lovable. And God doesn't use that power of being able to do anything to harm us, but to renew us and restore us and to transform us. Sometimes that feels painful, but it is always for us and for our good. And so I want to read some words from Paul at the end of this passage. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. 
Therefore, glorify God in your body. You are the wandering temple of the Holy Spirit in this world. So when in doubt, glorify God with your body. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we, we come to you today uh, entering into this space, seeking to encounter you, seeking to find your wisdom, your healing, your forgiveness. Lord, help us to be conscientious of, of where you are at work and restoring each of us. And Lord, I ask that you would help remind us that we are called to your work, and that we are called to extend the love and the forgiveness we get to those around us, that we are called to point you out to a broken world. We are called uh, to be uh, temples of your spirit. And Lord, I just ask that you would renew us and restore that vision in our lives and help us to choose that and to choose to live for something. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.